Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the 343 Podcast. My name is John Pronich, and I am your host. And on today's episode, I have Raymond Verheijen. And I'm going to go ahead and give you kind of a overview of what Raymond and I talked about. At one point during our conversation, Raymond said, they want to buy menus. And by they, he's referring to American soccer coaches. He also said that American soccer coaches are susceptible to the flavor of the month. And you know what? I completely agree. Why? Because those two statements describe me perfectly when I was a young coach trying to figure out my own beliefs about the game and experiment with my own ideas on the field. And I have a feeling that those two statements might describe you perfectly as well. Now, Raymond is not afraid to say the things that you probably don't want to hear. In fact, it's just normal for him. That blunt, all-business attitude is ingrained in him and is a big part of Dutch culture. He and I discussed that and much more throughout this entire episode. And as you're probably becoming accustomed to, I always try to conduct a slightly different interview than most listeners and most guests would expect. So even if you've listened to Raymond speak before, or if you've taken one of his courses, or if you already follow him on Twitter, you're still in for a treat. I was able to get him to open up and tell me about what he was like as a young player and how injury at a young age led him to early retirement and an early career in coaching. He also told me about his early coaching days, including how he captured the attention of Frank Reichard and Ronald Komen. He told me about the feelings he experienced when he was appointed as an assistant coach with the Dutch national team when he was only in his mid-20s. And we talked a little bit about the process that he goes through before sending out some of his bold, bold tweets, and also the purpose behind them that only a certain few people might understand. Towards the end of the interview, he also provided a bunch of gold nuggets once he started talking about his observations of American soccer coaches. These days, Raymond is the CEO of World Football Academy. On the WFA website, Raymond is described as a man with an immaculate track record and extensive background in football and a leader in football conditioning, and he has introduced his unique football-specific approach successfully throughout the world. Now, if you don't already, I highly suggest following Raymond on Twitter. And before we get into today's episode, I'd also like to say thank you to Tim Gentles and Aaron Byers for arranging this interview with Raymond. I was able to meet both of those guys at our 343 meetup in downtown Los Angeles in January 2017. And since then, all three of us have exchanged a bunch of messages trying to set this interview up. It was a, uh, a lot of... Uh, a lot of back and forth that went into the making of this episode, and I couldn't be more thankful for those guys being patient with me and for Raymond being patient with me and for actually getting this episode out to you. So with that, I hope that you enjoy this episode of the 343 Podcast with Raymond Verheijen. Thank you. This episode of the 343 Podcast is brought to you by 343coaching.com. Visit 343coaching.com for more information about our online coaching courses, our live in-person coaching summits, and our Players Club here in Southern California. You can also dig through all of our free content, which includes articles, videos, and podcasts like this one you're listening to right now. You can find all of that plus more at 343coaching.com. That's the number three, number four, number three, coachingallspelledout.com. Thank you for listening to the show. 
and we hope you enjoy. Okay, so let's uh, let's get started with, I guess, uh, your your formative years. So you grew up in the Netherlands, obviously. Um, what were some of your first What are some of your first memories of of playing soccer as a young kid? Well, obviously, uh, like like uh, a lot of boys and girls, um, uh, you play football because of the love of the game. I mean, you play it uh, on the streets with your friends, and uh, um, yeah, in, in in the country where I'm from, it's 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 the number one thing that unites children and uh, and connects them. And uh, and obviously, because I was uh, born in Amsterdam. Um, with uh, with the home team uh, Ajax uh, doing really well in the in the in the early 70s. I was born in 71, and uh, Ajax won the Champions League in 71, 72, 73. It was the it was called the Europa Cup in those uh, those years, and um, yeah, so that was really hot uh, in the 70s. So uh, that was the era that I grew up and. Um, yeah, and everything just developed naturally. Did you have a player that you looked up to that was on the IX team? A lot of people, I think, would say Cruyff, but was there somebody else at that time that, that maybe you were following? Um, well, when I grew up as a boy, it was, uh, it was Johan Cruyff in his uh, late days and... Um, but the up-and-coming star in, in, in my childhood was Marco van Basten. Uh, he was he was the, the number one uh, striker and uh, player of the year, world player of the year, uh, and leader of uh, AC Milan. So uh, yeah, Marco van Basten was uh, was the man in in my childhood. Yeah. And what specifically about him did you gravitate towards? What what was he doing that caught your attention? Well, I mean, uh, he makes football look so uh, so simple. I mean, uh, uh, nobody could really catch him. And uh, when he had the ball, um, he was always dangerous. And, um, and, and, and defenders really, really struggled. Uh, he, he, he made football look very easy. He was always on top of his defenders. And... Uh, uh, and we all know that uh, football, in, in, for most of us, is not an easy game. So, uh, yeah, that was really impressive. Okay, so I, I absolutely agree with you. Football was never an easy game for me. I was never a star player. What about you, though? Did, did you have a, a, I don't know, a good youth career? Did you have a professional career? What was your playing career like? Well, I played... Um, yeah, till I was 17 or 18, um, I was uh, uh, playing in the Dutch under 17 team. Um, so I was really uh, going in the right direction, dreaming to become a professional player. But um, when I was 17, I started to struggle with my hips and I developed a chronic uh, hip injury. Uh, which forced me to uh, to retire uh, by the time I was 18. So um, at that particular moment, uh, it felt like uh, my whole world was falling apart. Uh, 
Um, but yeah, on hindsight, uh, I basically managed to turn a disadvantage into an advantage because uh, retiring at the age of 18 means that uh, you can start uh, doing your coaching licenses at a very, very early age. Uh, so I uh, I did my coaching license and um, and at the same time I went to the university in Amsterdam and I studied uh, exercise physiology and sports psychology. Uh, so these three things: coaching licenses, exercise physiology, and sports psychology. Uh, those three uh, things were my main focus uh, between 18 and and I think 23. Uh, so I was able to develop really quickly as a coach, uh, and um, yeah, I benefited from that hugely. What was your first experience as a coach? What age group or what was your role with the team? Well, the funny thing is that um, my first uh, my first team was uh, was a, a, a girls team, and it was the best girls team in Amsterdam. And they were playing in a boys' league, and um, uh, and they were beating them uh, uh, regularly uh, because they were extremely good. And uh, so that was my first coaching experience: coaching these girls, playing against boys, and uh, and and beating them uh, convincingly. Uh, so that was in itself obviously uh, a nice experience uh, because it was impressive uh, to see those girls play and um, and then later I uh, I started to coach uh, uh, boys as well uh, in, in the youth system uh, as part of my coaching licenses because uh, if you do your coaching licenses in Holland you have to coach a team that same year uh, to apply to apply what you learn uh, during the courses um, and then by the time I was 25, I think, I became assistant coach with the Dutch national team. Uh, yeah, and, and that really uh, made the ball uh, rolling from then on. That seems like a very quick progression. So f- from 18, you're a player in the youth national team to and now being an assistant coach with the, f- with the full senior team? Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was uh, very quick, and uh, if you are honest, it 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 was probably too quick, but um, I didn't complain. <laughs> what do you what do you mean by uh, what do you mean by too quick? Do you feel like you missed out on something, or? Well, in general, uh, in general, I would say that uh, to work at the highest level, you uh, uh, you need a good coaching foundation. Um, and I basically became uh, the assistant coach uh, uh, specialized in periodization and conditioning. Um, so although I, although I was the assistant in a very specific uh, area, still I think uh, it would have been better to, uh, to make that step uh, maybe uh, five years later um, because I think you have to be better equipped uh, better developed uh, to work at the highest level, and uh, I was I was lucky that I was surrounded by some very uh, g- uh, some great mentors like Frank Reichardt and Johan Neeskes and uh, Ruth Kroll, uh, which were Dutch legends in in the seventies and the eighties, and they spent a lot of time um, 
teaching me and, uh, and sharing stories with me. Uh, so for me, I was lucky. But uh, if I had not had those mentors, I think I would have struggled big time, like a lot of uh, coaches do when they step onto the big stage uh, too early. So I was lucky, but in general, I would say that uh, 25 is too young. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it also uh, happened in a, let's say, coincidental because... Um, when I finished my university degree, uh, I developed my master thesis into a book uh, about co- football conditioning. And this book uh, uh, quickly became uh, the book in the Dutch coach education system. So the Dutch FA adopted my book. Uh, and then uh, soon later, they, um, they asked me to become an instructor. So by the time I was 24, I was already a pro-licensed instructor at the Dutch FA. And my first uh, group of uh, students uh, were four of them, Frank Rijkaard, Ronald Koeman, Ruth Gullet, and um, Johan Neeskes. Uh, so, um, so they threw me in the deep straight away as an instructor <laughs> as well. And um, But I remember that it felt natural because basically... Uh, I was still living my dream uh, as, as, as a boy. I wanted to become uh, a professional player. And now, uh, indirectly, I still uh, reached uh, or fulfilled my dream. So it felt really natural. And, and that's probably what Frank Reichardt uh, noticed uh, when he was looking at me as, uh, as an instructor. And then uh, when he uh, got his pro license uh, li- degree, then uh, he became the national team coach of Holland and asked me to be, uh, to be one of his assistants. Um, yeah, so that is basically how it happened. And that is the reason why at such a young age, I was uh, already working for the Dutch national team. Do you remember that presentation that you gave to Frank Reichard and the other, the other coaches that were in the room that first time that you had to present to them? Do you remember the, the contents of that? Yeah. Yeah, I remember it very well. And uh, like I said, and that is also why I remember that it felt very natural because I wasn't really nervous or anything. And uh, I was just uh, living my dream as a young boy uh, or a young man. And um, and like I said, that is something that he probably uh, noticed and recognized, uh, which uh, convinced him that uh, I would probably also uh, at a very young age be uh, capable of dealing with the national team players. Um, yeah, so that is, uh, that is what he did. He asked me to become his assistant. Uh, and um, so the Euro 2000 uh, was my first tournament with, uh, with the national team. And how old were you then? I was 27 by that. Uh, yeah, I was 27 then. So when you when you come into the Dutch national team as a 25 26 year old what was your first goal that you wanted to accomplish with them Um well I was so young and inexperienced that I had no real goals I think um the other thing of course was uh, that that made it also a little bit easier for me is that several of the Dutch national team players were of my age and I had either played with or against them uh, in, the, in the Dutch youth system. Uh, 
So uh, players like uh, Edgar Davids, uh, uh, Jimmy Hasselbank, uh, Philip Cocu, uh, players like that uh, I knew from, uh, from when we were teenagers, like I said, playing with and against each other. So that made it relatively easy for me to adapt uh, on that stage. And, um, and like I said, I didn't, I did not have real goals. I was just, uh, living my dream, uh, fulfilling my role as an assistant, preparing the team for, uh, for Euro 2000. Uh, and yeah, that is basically the environment that I was working in without bigger pictures or something. What was the most difficult part about that then? Cause it almost sounds like, I don't want to say that it was easy, but like you, you've said that it was natural. You said that you were comfortable there. You said that you had the the trust of of the manager, and you had the basically like friends on the team. So, what was the most difficult part about that experience? Well, that those first years were not uh, really difficult. Um, uh, the, maybe the only um, maybe the only difficulty was. Um, dealing with external factors um so you you make a plan um and then when you apply the training plan uh, you always have to be flexible um and adapt to external factors and sometimes uh, make small changes within the plan and that is obviously something that i was not used to because i was relatively inexperienced and uh, and I had not played myself at that level. So what I remember is that uh, Frank Rijkaard and Johan Neeskes uh, once in a while sat down with me and explained that uh, given certain situations, it was smarter to go to the left, although the plan said that we had to go to the right. Uh, so th- I think that is the only thing that I can remember that sometimes uh, made me struggle a little bit because uh, yeah, I, had not, I, I did not have that understanding myself, so they had to explain that to me. But in general, it was, those first years were relatively easy and uh, the more difficult times were after you were 2000 uh, when Louis van Gaal uh, became the national team coach. I think that was probably the most difficult uh, period uh, in my in my career. How so? Well, the the team was um, uh, based on the '95 Ajax team that won the Champions League with Louis van Gaal. Uh, they beat AC Milan in the Champions League final in 1995, uh, and in those days the players were 19 20 21 years old and they were just following the leader louis Fajal. <coughs> but then five six seven years later when all these players were playing with barcelona ac milan they all had become uh, big players with a lot of money um, but louis Fajal approached them still like it was 1995 and uh, so he expected them to follow the leader uh, but they um, they didn't like that anymore. Uh, so uh, they were used to uh, more like people managers at their club. While Louis Vagal is a, is a real teacher, which is ideal for young players. 
But uh, those players at Barcelona and AC Milan and Juventus, uh, they were used to people's managers uh, when they were 25, 26. So uh, there was a real clash between the players on one side and Louis van Gaal uh, on the other side. The players wanted the people's manager and Louis van Gaal approached them like a teacher. So there was a real clash between them. And I was, uh, uh, as I should be, as an assistant, I was very loyal to uh, to the head coach, Louis van Gaal. Uh, and I protected him uh, always to the players. Um, uh, but that uh, put me in a, in a very complex situation uh, because um, the players accumulated frustration towards the the teacher Louis van Gaal, uh, but obviously they didn't say that in his face uh, because uh, they were too afraid of him uh, and they didn't want to end up on the bench and they want to play. So they kept their mouth shut uh, to him, although they were more and more frustrated. And me as a young and inexperienced coach, protecting him, uh, I, I sometimes was an easy victim for them. So they released their frustration uh, towards uh, Louis van Gaal, they released that uh, that sometimes uh, to me. Um, yeah, and as you probably understand, that that creates a very strange dynamic uh, because then I had to deal with frustration that had nothing to do with me, <laughs> uh, which is that if, when you are young and inexperienced, is is not always easy. So um, so at that moment, it was difficult for me, but obviously on hindsight. Uh, these players really overloaded me and really made life difficult sometimes for me. Uh, and as a result, I developed myself as a coach within one year um, uh, what, uh, in, in a way that normally takes you 10 years. So the moment itself wasn't nice, but uh, from an overall perspective, uh, uh, with respect to my development as a coach in general, uh, that period was gold because it allowed me to, to make really big steps forward. Uh, and it really made me streetwise in international football. So, uh, but like I said, that, that was probably, uh, the most difficult period for me as a young coach. One of the observations I think we as, as Americans, uh, have noticed about Dutch coaching culture is that you guys seem to be very uh, blunt or or direct, and I think the way you're describing it with uh, with Louis Van Hall is is he was like a teacher to the players, not necessarily like mm-hmm. a like a people's person. Do you think that's that's true across all of Dutch coaching culture, or do you think Louis Van Hall was was an exception? Uh, in general, I, I would say that that is a characteristic of uh, Dutch people. I mean, uh, and obviously within that spectrum, you have variation uh, because uh, I, I also worked a lot with uh, Gus Hiddink and he is the opposite. I mean, he's a very calm uh, people's manager. Um, and um, I mean, the difference is that a teacher, he a teacher wants to, get players from 100% to 101%. So a teacher really wants to improve players while a people's manager is more focused on creating the right environment and allowing players to be at their 100% as often as possible. 
Uh, so that is basically the difference between a people's manager and a teacher. And so Gus Hiddink is, is the opposite of Louis van Gaal. Um, but he is also an exception uh, within Dutch uh, culture. Um, uh, Dutch people uh, in general, uh, so I'm not talking about everybody, but the majority. Dutch people in general, uh, they just say what they think. Um, which is their strength, but it's also often their weakness. Um, and what Dutch people often do not understand is that um, that saying what you think is not what they're doing. Basically, they are saying something before they think. <laughs> uh, um, so uh, it's just stimulus response. Uh, something happens and they immediately start talking. So that means that you start to talk without consciously considering where to say something or not. Um, and as a result, Dutch people often end up in, uh, in, in difficult situations. And uh, the way they justify uh, this uh, characteristic towards themselves is by calling it honesty. <laughs> uh, what you often see is that Dutch people say, well, at least I say what I think. At least I am honest. Um, but I think um, it has nothing to do with honesty. It has to do with the fact that uh, you have uh, a lack of self-control. Uh, because you can think whatever you want. But that doesn't mean that you automatically have to share that verbally with other people. So what you would expect is that something happens, you have a conscious thought, and then you consider whether you're going to um, share that conscious thought verbally with another person eh, based on self-control. Um, and that is something that not all Dutch people uh, are able to do. Um, so in general, uh, that is a characteristic of, of Dutch people uh, for sure. So now I'm I'm thinking about I'm thinking about your Twitter <laughs> and yeah, and some I of the things <laughs> and some of the things that you've said on there. And so yeah. how how would you describe your your attitude or your demeanor on, on Twitter then? Are you are you consciously saying these things or is this just your your Dutch culture coming through? Well, obviously, uh, when you shift to uh, to the Twitter, uh, it's um, good to draw the bigger picture uh, because the, f the first question is, uh, what is the why behind uh, what I do on Twitter? Um, and, and secondly, um, if I would uh, tweet things instantly, uh, then yes, it is an impulse. It is. It, it would be stimulus response like I just described. Um, but what I always do on Twitter is that um, I first write things for myself uh, and then I, I sleep uh, a night on it and then the next day I think about it again. And then at some stage I make the decision whether to tweet it or not. So... As you can imagine, that is uh, uh, a more conscious approach than uh, what I just described, like uh, uh, people uh, reacting on impulse or emotion. 
so that is one thing. And, and the other thing, like I mentioned, is that um, the reason why I um, use Twitter is uh, to question things in general. I mean, obviously, there is a reason why in 2009 I decided to start uh, the World Football Academy. Uh, because uh, after all those years in international football uh, with national teams, with clubs uh, in different countries, different coaches, uh, I was so fed up with everything that I had seen and heard that uh, I recognized that I lost my um, internal motivation. And, and, and the reason why I started to play football as a boy when I was five and the the love of the game, uh, and that is why you start playing when you are a, a little a little boy or girl. Um, because of all the things that happen around you, uh, it is uh, at some stage uh, very difficult to protect that uh, internal motivation. And um, therefore, in 2009, I, I decided to start uh, the World Football Academy. And, um, and I said, okay, if the football world in general is no longer my world uh, because of the things that uh, the corruption and the politics and, 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 and all the incompetence, then the only alternative is uh, either to uh, do something else or try to create your own football world without corruption and without politics and without all the incompetence. And I choose uh, the latter. So uh, I decided to uh, create the World Football Academy and, um, and do it the right way. And um, so that was the starting point. And what I do on Twitter is, um, is just questioning things that happen in the football world uh, as an extension to the coaching courses. Because what you often see in coaching courses is that it's only theory. So te people teach you in theory about principles, about knowledge, about anything. And then uh, delegates, coaches have to go from theory to practice uh, to apply it in their own environment. And what I decided to do is not to go from theory to practice, but to start with practice and then go from practice to theory, and then to practice again. So what I do is uh, I don't teach from the books theory, but I take my starting point in all kind of practical situations in football. I theorize those practical situations. So I create theorized practice. And in my coaching courses, I teach theorized practice which is much more meaningful to the people in the room than just theory from the books. And as a result, when those coaches go back to their own club or organization, they now don't have to apply theory from the books, but now they can apply theorized practice. And that is much easier for them than um, just applying uh, theoretical uh, knowledge so that is the deeper meaning behind what i do on twitter uh, which is obviously something that is difficult to understand for people on the outside who just see my twitter account 
But for the people in my classroom who do the World Football Academy courses, they perfectly understand why and how uh, my Twitter account is an extension uh, for their learning process. Yeah, see, I was unaware. I've never, I've never taken your your courses before. Um, I have watched uh, several of your online courses, though. I think I mm-hmm. signed up for two of those. Um, and but what sometimes, uh, what sometimes also happened, uh, and I've done that, for example, in uh, I have, for example, done that in when I was in Australia. In uh, I think it was in two thousand fourteen. Is that uh, some of the Australian coaches, they, um, they sh- shared their frustration uh, with me about something that they had uh, seen on television with Roy Hodgson, for example, and how he handled uh, uh, Stur- Sturridge. If I remember well, Sturridge, uh, who was a very young player in those days, uh, asked not to play for England against, I think, Estonia because he was really tired in October. Uh, and there was a lot of criticism, and, and Roy Hodgson even mentioned it in a press conference, not protecting Sturridge, but just sharing with the media uh, Sturridge's uh, uh, wish. But in October, Sturridge had already played more minutes compared to the whole season before. Um, so the, 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 the Australian coaches in the classroom said that uh, Roy Hodgson um, uh, really handled that situation uh, in an amateur way. He should have protected the young uh, Sturridge. And they said to me, you have to tweet something about that. Um, and then I said to them, well, maybe you should tweet something about it because it's your frustration. You think that this is not how coaches uh, should coach. And then basically what I did in the, in, in the course is I created a situation in which the coaches themselves wrote all the points that they wanted to make. And they uh, defined or, or described the, 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 the tweets. And then uh, in the evening, because of the time difference between Australia and England, in the evening, I, uh, I put those tweets uh, on my Twitter account. And then within hours... Um, within hours, uh, it was all over the news with all the English uh, newspapers, uh, the Telegraph and, and the Guardian and, and the Independent and, and all of them. And then the next day, we evaluated uh, the effect of the tweets uh, in, the, in, in the classroom during the course. And, uh, and so we discussed, okay, this is what we uh, wrote. This is uh, what was written in the media. Okay, as an evaluation, are you guys happy with the effect that you created? And uh, how many people do you think you have reached? Uh, 100 or a million or tens of millions and um, et cetera, et cetera. So um, those tweets that we wrote about uh, Roy Hodgson and, and, and Sturridge was actually part of the course uh, to send a signal to, uh, to the football world. And that is uh, and that is what I uh, do uh, during courses. So uh, a lot of the tweets that uh, I uh, I write are uh, actually part of the coaching course. 
Uh, and like I said, for people from the outside, that is very difficult to notice. But the people in the course, um, yeah, can use that as a very uh, valuable extension uh, to their learning process. Now I'm wondering because you you tweeted out something this morning that related to American youth soccer. You know, it was about about tournament play and and having six games in a short amount of time and. Is that something that's going to be a focus in a, in the courses that you teach here in the United States, or is that just another observation that you, that you had? Well, it is something that somebody uh, emailed to me yesterday. Okay. So somebody brought that to my attention uh, yesterday, um, and obviously the the problem is obvious. So I'm well aware of the problem, uh, but the reason why I tweeted it is because I received that email yesterday. Yeah, and 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 this is uh, th- this this is such an extreme example that uh, I I decided that I had to do something about it uh, yesterday. So uh, I wrote the tweet. I uh, slept at night, and uh, this morning I decided uh, to actually uh, um, uh, tweet it on my account. Because six games in six days at a relatively high level with uh, 15-year-old boys, yeah, I mean, you don't have to be Einstein to understand that uh, that is a very tricky situation because these boys who are also uh, developing themselves, eh, they're growing, some of them might be in the growth spurt, um, uh, they are doing multiple sports uh, during the season. Um, so if you play six games in six days playing at a relatively high level, you will accumulate a huge amount of fatigue during that week. And as we all know, when you accumulate fatigue uh, over time, uh, your nervous system gets slower. So the signal from your brain to muscles travels slower. That means that you have less control over your body, you have less coordination, which means that uh, you you have less coordination, less less control when executing maximum explosive football actions. Uh, and like I said, you don't have to be Einstein to understand that the injury risk uh, increases dramatically if you play six games during six days. Uh, so basically, you are gambling. You are gambling with the health of these children, um, and that is a matter of fact. Uh, obviously, the situation is uh, is is pretty complicated uh, in the U.S. because uh, on the one hand, you have these people who make a lot of money with tournaments, so they don't put the um, uh, they don't put the children first, but uh, they put money first. So that is one complication. Then the, another complication, of course, is the parents who are uh, not very well educated in terms of football in general and football training in particular. Uh, so these um, these parents also don't see the problem of six games uh, in six days. They actually see it as value for money. They think that if their children play more games in six days, they get more value for the money they pay. So the parents actually expect more games. 
So on the one hand, you have parents pushing for more games. You, on the other hand, you have people who make more money with more games. And then you have these children in between who uh, are just uh, trying to survive, uh, accumulating fatigue. Uh, so, yeah, that is an extremely worrying situation in, uh, in U.S. Uh, youth football. Are we the only ones that do that, to your knowledge? <laughs> no, I mean, I travel to 30, 40 countries uh, each year uh, on all continents. So uh, I think I have a, a good overview. I, I, I have a good overview of, of, of the game globally. And... Um, this is definitely not only happening in the U.S. Um, it is happening all around the world. But what is uh, what is the difference between the U.S. and other countries where this happened is that uh, is is the many the money factor. In other countries, it is happening, but not in the context of people making money um, uh, at the expense of children. Uh, and and that is uh, and that is the, the difference uh, with the U.S. In the U.S., youth football is big business. So you would expect that uh, children are put first. Um, so what is good for children uh, should be uh, the leading factor. But in reality, money is the leading factor, and uh, you, uh, people make millions of dollars. Uh, and that, that, is, that is the big difference between the U.S. and other countries. So it happens all around the world. But the difference is that in the U.S. it is run by money. Yeah, that's a very scary situation. Yeah, and, and when, I, when I first read your tweet this morning, um, when it said play five or six games in, in six days, I actually remember coaching my teams. We would go to a tournament and we would play five or six games in two days depending yep. on 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 how the tournament was structured we would mm-hmm. ar- we would arrive friday night wake up saturday morning play our first game at 8 a.m and if we made it to the finals we would be playing our sixth fifth or sixth game on sunday evening at 6 p.m i don't have to ask you about the quality of that sixth game because by the time uh, some of your players are already injured Yes or no? Yes. Exhausted, injured. Yeah. Yes. Exhausted. So, what what is the quality? Uh, what is the quality of play on Sunday? Well, it's very poor. So you are not playing football anymore. You're playing fatigue ball, and that is why I also wrote in the tweet. Uh, basically, uh, you're playing the fatigue cup or the fatigue tournament. You are not playing football and. It's not a matter of the best football team is winning the tournament. No, it is the team that can handle the fatigue the best that will win the tournament. Um, and um, people in the U.S. wonder why there are so many ACL injuries in sports in general and in football in particular. And people also wonder why ACL injuries happen at a younger and a younger and a younger age these days. Uh, now, sometimes we even have nine or 10 year old players, children with one or two ACL injuries. And everybody asks themselves the question, how is that possible? Well, this is the number one reason. Obviously, there are more than one reason for ACL injuries, but fatigue is by far the number one reason 
for ACL injuries. So it is just a matter of time before there is a parent in the U.S. who says, okay, enough is enough. Uh, I, don't wanna, I don't want people to gamble with the health of my, uh, my child. ACL rehabilitation costs me a huge amount of money. Um, I'm going to take uh, somebody to court. And given the culture in the U.S., this is probably what is necessary to wake people up. Eh, what you would hope for is that people wake up because of arguments, because, uh, because of um, uh, logical explaining. But given your uh, culture of uh, I sue you, um, it is probably a parent suing somebody for destroying the ACL of his child that is necessary to wake people up. So yeah, it's just a matter of time before that will happen. Have you ever, have you ever considered doing, or have you, have you done in the past, um, a course for parents? Yeah, we are about to launch, uh, uh, a course for parents, an online course. We have, uh, last year we did a pilot, uh, with uh, a group of parents in the U.S. Uh, and uh, we asked for extensive feedback. And based on their feedback, we have uh, further developed uh, uh, the course. And later this year, we, uh, we will launch um, this parent online parent course. And hopefully, hopefully uh, millions of parents will... Um, will follow this course so that we will have better educated uh, parents who are able to do what is right for their child rather than parents uh, pushing their children to play five games in two days uh, and actually gambling with the health of their uh, child. So um, hopefully within the next few years, uh, we can at least solve the problem uh, till a certain extent. And hopefully we can also reduce the number of ACL uh, injuries amongst other injuries in, uh, in U.S. Uh, youth football. Uh, because at the end of the day, that is what this is all about. I mean, those children, there's a reason why they started playing football. Uh, have for the love of the game, that's what they want. And it is our responsibility to protect these children and to protect their uh, internal motivation. And it's our responsibility to do what is right for them and to create uh, an environment in which they can develop themselves to their uh, 100%. Um, and so far, that is not happening. So far, we are gambling with children. And we are making money at the expense of uh, children. So hopefully in the upcoming years, we, uh, we can start solving that problem. Now, that, that seems like you're talking more directly to the United States. I'm curious, is there a country or a club or a, a group of people that, that are doing it right, that are, that are leading by example right now? that you would like to highlight or well in 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 every country also the u.s in every country there are always uh, people who are doing it right 
Um, but um, in every country, you have the same problem like in the U.S., eh? like I said before. It is not a U.S. problem. It's a global problem eh? that overtraining uh, children is a global problem. What makes it worse in the U.S., like I said before, is the money element. Eh? It's the, the pay-to-play and more-is-better uh, culture. Um, so... In general, there are um, coaches and clubs and, and, and organizations who are doing it right. Um, I mean, if you look at uh, countries like uh, the Netherlands, like uh, Spain, like Portugal, um, then those are countries that, um, I mean, even, even clubs like Ajax, like Feyenoord in Holland, but also Barcelona in Spain or Benfica in, in, in Portugal. These are clubs who do four training sessions a week with the best players in the country. So can you imagine that the top clubs all around the world, that, for example, Barcelona has four training sessions a week with their youth players. And then at a lower level, you have <laughs> all around the world, so also in the US, you have people who think, no, we should train eight times a week and we even pay extra money for that. So I hope you understand that that is a big contrast and, uh, and, and, and illustrates the problem that a lot of people think that in football you have to train more to improve. But doing more to improve is only true in an endurance sport. Yes, when, when something is an endurance sport, more is better. But football is not an endurance sport. Football is an intensity sport. Um, and that means that uh, when you compare a lower level and a higher level of football, the volume, the endurance is the same. It's 90 minutes. The difference between levels of play is the speed of the game. At a higher level, you have less space and less time to make football actions. As a result, at a higher level, you need a higher speed of actions. So football is a speed of actions sport. In other words, an intensity sport. That means that in an intensity sport, you shouldn't train more, but you should train better, more intense. So instead of going from four sessions a week to six sessions a week, training more, what should happen in an intensity sport is that you keep training three or four times a week, but that those sessions should be more intense compared to last week and last month. And what does that mean? Sessions should be more intense that means that the same sessions like last week should take place this week, but with less space and less time, in other words, with a higher speed of action, which is extremely demanding for players. And if you reduce space and time uh, from week to week and from month to month, your players will improve. They will communicate better with each other. They will make better decisions. They will execute their decisions better technically. And they will also get fitter and fitter. So in football, it is not about doing more. 
But in football, it is about better. It is about quality over quantity. And as a result, this whole more is better approach in the U.S. is stopping you from developing as a nation, as a football nation. What should happen is that youth players should not accumulate fatigue, but should be totally fresh every session so they can play football at 100% every session And as a result, they can gradually grow towards 101%. But what you see now is that with those tournaments and with those all those training sessions each week, that from week to week and from month to month, players in the U.S. get tired. Their speed of action is actually going down rather than improving. So what you are developing as a nation is slow football players, one-tempo football players. And that is also what you can see in your national team. Uh, Your national team players, they are big, they are strong, they are fast, but they are one-tempo football players. And what you need is players who are able to deal with less and less space and time. So... As long as you don't solve this fundamental problem in youth football, you will not develop as a nation and you will hit a glass ceiling. Raymond, do you like working with youth players more or, or top-level professional players? Because what, what you just kind of talked about was a lot about youth training. But you've worked with national team players. You've worked with the best, the best club teams in Europe. Where, what are you more passionate about? Mm, I'm not passionate about a level. I am passionate about football or I'm passionate about people who want to improve. Either coaches or players. That's also what I say in, in, in when I do coaching courses. I always say to, my, to the people in my classroom, I don't care at what level you work. I don't care the club that you work, the players that you work with. I don't care. The only thing that I care about is that you want to raise your bar, that you want to improve. And then I, 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 I educate somebody at the lowest level with the same passion as somebody at the highest level. Um, because for me, it is about players and about people who have good intentions and who want to raise the bar and want to create a better football world. Because that is why I started the World Football Academy in 2009. So is, is your intention then to stay with education? Or are you, would you like to someday return to coaching? Or are you coaching right now? I, I actually don't know what, you, uh, what you're doing currently. Well, uh, obviously behind the scenes, I, uh, uh, I help a lot of coaches um, because I want to stay in touch with, uh, with the working floor. Uh, for example, uh, last season, I worked uh, closely with, uh, with uh, uh, Ajax head coach Peter Bos, who now moved to uh, Borussia Dortmund uh, and uh, who, uh, who guided Ajax to the Europa League final against uh, Man United. And I think uh, a lot of people who follow the Europa League uh, remember 
the very young but very attacking uh, Ajax uh, team. Um, uh, so that is for me, uh, working behind the scenes and helping a coach like uh, like him is for me the perfect uh, way to stay in touch with the working floor. And on the other hand, I do the coach education uh, with the World Football Academy uh, traveling all around the world. Uh, so I have found the ideal balance between practice and theory. And um, yeah, and I think I will keep it like that at least for the next few years. And maybe maybe at some stage uh, I might decide to work full time with the club again. But for the time being, I think uh, the combination between uh, uh, helping coaches and helping clubs or national teams on the one hand and educating coaches at all levels in, in, in all countries on the other hand is, uh, yeah, is for me uh, almost too good to be true. I, I, have, a feeling, I have a feeling you're going to be missing practice, full-time practice for, or in, in a couple of years. That's my suspicion about you, Raymond. <laughs> well, that, that, that could be true. I mean, uh, we have to wait and see, obviously. Um, but um, like I said, helping, uh, helping coaches uh, like, uh, like uh, with Ajax this season uh, already gives me a lot of satisfaction from a practical point of view. And um, if, if, if my desire to be on the training pitch uh, is, is growing... In the, in the next few years, then maybe at some stage I, may, I, I might make that decision. But uh, right now I feel that uh, I have found the right, right, uh, right balance. Now, where, where can people find out more about World Football Academy or, or get in touch with you and, and find some of your courses? Well, the, there are two ways. Obviously, we have the worldfootballacademy.com uh, website. And, um, and we also have a specific site for the U.S., the World Football Academy USA.com website. And uh, people who are more interested uh, about our events can also always send an email to info at worldfootballacademy.com. Um, and, for example, uh, in the last few weeks we had uh, a five-day mentorship in Amsterdam the, the the WFA football coaching mentorship and uh, followed by uh, the five day WFA expert meeting at Benfica in Lisbon and we had many many coaches from the US uh, that the number of US coaches is growing every year um, so I think we had uh, between 10 and 15 in the last few weeks in Europe and um, and what we do with the expert meeting is that uh, those are five days, very intensive, and always at one of the top European clubs. In, in uh, So last year we were at Feyenoord in, in Rotterdam and, and the year before at uh, Barcelona in Spain and, and the year before in, in South Africa and the year before in, in, in Chelsea in London. So uh, those are five days with, uh, with 40 coaches from... Uh, 30 plus different countries and all the continents around the world. And like I said, uh, the number of U.S. coaches within that 40 exclusive group of 40 coaches is already 12, I think, um, which is a sign that uh, that a lot of U.S. coaches are very hungry for uh, for information. So, uh, 
yeah, coaches who are listening to to this podcast and who uh, want to find out more, uh, feel free to send an email to info at worldfootballacademy.com. And then uh, my staff can uh, can send you all the necessary information to uh, to explore those options. I think you nailed it I, towards the end there, saying that U.S. coaches are hungry. We're very hungry for information. And we've been – I don't know if we've been restricted or – I don't know the right way to say it, but we just haven't been given enough here in the United States. It's not accessible, I guess is the right way to say it. It's not easily accessible. You have to be granted admission into into coaching courses if you'd like to further your education. And, and the number of spots is very limited, and it's not in favor of the coaches right now. And having opportunities like, like what you offer is is something that I think you're going to start to see more and more and more of over the next few years. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is exactly uh, uh, like I said why we started the World Football Academy. Our our ambassador is Gus Hiddink, and he defined our mission statement. And uh, because when I was working with him uh, with uh, the national team of uh, of Russia in the Euro two thousand eight, he made a striking comment. He said, uh, "You have to work at the highest level first before you get access to the uh, best information." But then it's basically too late. It, what he said is that younger coaches at a, in, a, in an earlier phase of their career and also coaches in smaller countries should also, as uh, smaller football countries, they should get access to the best information at a, a younger age. And, um, and that became our mission statement uh, to bring the best knowledge and the best experts to the doorsteps of not only the elite in football, but also to younger coaches and coaches in smaller football countries. And, um, um, and, yeah, and that, that's also what we are doing in the U.S. And um, so on the one hand, I see that U.S. coaches are, are very eager. It, there's also a downside. Um, because of that eagerness for information, you guys are also very vulnerable for the flavor of the month. <laughs> exactly. uh, because uh, what you see, if you go to a convention, or a conference, you see that all kind of people from all around the world, they fly to the US to present some kind of product that looks very fancy, but has absolutely nothing to do with football. <laughs> but because it has a fancy name and it has a fancy design and because it is presented in a very smooth way, a lot of Hungry U.S. coaches are buying it, buying the flavor of the month. But in reality, um, they are buying air, if you understand what I mean. They are mm -hmm. buying nothing. And then after buying nothing for a lot of money, they decide, okay, this is not working, so let's buy something else. And then they go to the next flavor of the month and the next flavor of the month. And they spend a lot of money buying nothing. And you can compare that with a dog who is chasing his own tail. Um, and, and, and yeah, that is one of the problems, I think, in coach education in the U.S., that people copying the champion. Okay, the champion is doing this, so let's copy it. So then we will also become the champion. And um, yeah, they, they, they want to buy uh, just... Um, Menus, basically. Okay, give me the menu. Tell me what to do. 
uh, the here is your money, tell me what to do, and then I will be successful. And um, I think that is one of the problems that should be solved in, in coach education in the US, that rather, rather than buying uh, books to copy, uh, coaches in the US should be educated to think themselves and to develop their own way of coaching and their own way of thinking instead of copying somebody else. Because um, if you copy somebody else, you will always be behind because the person that you are copying is also is already one, two or three steps further. So the number one objective for coach education in the US is to develop independent coaches who are able to think and coach themselves uh, independent of other people or other countries. I think that sums up our <laughs> that sums up everything that we uh, that we're experiencing here in the United States. Because everything that you that you just mentioned, the flavor of the month, the menu, things like that. I personally went through that as a young coach when I was first starting at 18, 19, 20 years old. But that was partly that was partly to do because I didn't have access to quality education. I was finding mm-hmm. things on YouTube or I was finding things on uh forums on online or something like that. There was no there was no one place to go to to to, to receive quality education. That hasn't really changed 10 years later. No, I can see that. I mean, uh, if I if if I visit uh, conventions or conferences in the US, yeah, it really hurt my eyes if I see the people that are invited to do presentations or practical sessions or uh, that um, yeah have nothing to do with football. And uh, it looks fancy, it looks nice, and they present it in a very smooth way, but it's not going to help football in the US. And um, uh, we have to educate coaches who can identify that and who are able to understand themselves okay, what can help me and what should I get rid of? And um, yeah, like I said, that is the number one priority that you, that you educate independent people rather than people who are copying uh, other people. You know what scares me actually right now is that I think the latest development in U.S. soccer education is they've brought in a team of, of – Dutch professionals to now teach the U S educators. And then that is supposed to trickle down and those educators are supposed to spread that message throughout the youth soccer landscape. To me, I don't understand how that's supposed to work. Well, uh, interesting enough. I mean, I, I worked with those people when I was working at the Dutch FA Okay, and, uh, and the, the head of coach education, Nico Romain, um, I actually shared a room uh, with him for, uh, I think, about five years. So the two of us, uh, we know each other really well also on a personal uh, basis. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm aware of uh, that development. And, um, well, I, I, I can't judge what they are literally doing right now. Um, but I can only say that I hope that they are... Um, encouraging people to develop a U.S. identity. 
um, if you understand what I mean, that uh, yeah. rather than copy-paste what they have done in Holland, they should, um, they should not implement something, but basically they should uh, guide or coordinate a process uh, that is uh, developed by U.S. people themselves, and that basically they should mentor U.S. people to develop a U.S. identity. Uh, because obviously they have something to offer. Uh, they, they have a lot of experience in the Netherlands with coach education, so uh, uh, they, can, they can help, they can mentor people in the U.S. Uh, but like I said before, uh, their, their job should be not to implement a Dutch uh, module. Their job, their responsibility should be to develop a group of U.S. coach educators who are able to run the program independently for the next few decades. We have a big country. That's a, that's a tall task. <laughs> yeah, but listen, if you take that job, then that's your responsibility. You exactly. Have no choice. Exactly. I agree with that 100%. If you're gonna if you're gonna if you're gonna take the money and you're gonna take the job, then we need results as well. But see, the the thing is too, like you said about the flavor of the month type thing, we could get too antsy too fast and say we're not we're seeing these results in three years or four years and switch everything again. And that's my that's one of the my biggest fears actually. Yeah, I mean you have a fast society. Uh, everything should be fast and quick and uh, fancy. Um, And developing something like this, uh, developing a proper coach education system uh, is going to take between five and ten years. And um, so if you want results within three years, that's an illusion. Uh, And if you decide after three years to throw everything in the bin and take a different approach and start all over again, yeah, basically you are shooting yourself in the foot. Um, So on the one hand, uh, the U.S. Federation should monitor the process from year to year, obviously. Are we making uh, progress? Are we heading in the right direction? But Real results can only be expected uh, after uh, between five and ten years. So uh, hopefully uh, people, uh, despite the culture in the U.S. and the way of thinking, fast, 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 hopefully people will have some patience. And um, But yeah, only time will tell. Of course, of course. All right, Raymond, I, I've had you for over an hour now. Is there is there anything else that you would like to... Uh, to say to listeners that are that are still uh, that are still listening to us. Well, all I can say is that uh, it's, it's more or less a summary of, of what we discussed in this hour. Is that um, hopefully coaches in the U.S. Um, will take a more objective perspective to the game uh, and uh, and take the characteristics of the game as a starting point rather than uh, subjective uh, opinions and experiences. Because, uh, like I explained before, if, if you take subjectivity, opinions, as a starting point of your coaching, 
you are very vulnerable for the flavor of the month and uh, you are a dog chasing his own tail. Um, and if you take a more objective uh, perspective to the game, then you have a bigger chance of being successful because if you take the characteristics of the game as the starting point, you are in advance already 100% sure that you are on the right track. Um, so hopefully, um, hopefully the next generation of coaches in the US will take that approach rather than justifying what they're doing based on what they did in the past. Uh, because that is a global problem of football. Uh, so also in the US that um, coaches are explaining and justifying their approach based on the past rather than based on what is necessary in the future. So if we together can change that way of thinking uh, in the US and in particular with, with the, the next generation of young coaches, I think that um, in the next 10 years, we can make more progress than uh, the progress that took place in the last 10 years. I agree, man. I agree. So once again, I guess people can, can get more information on World Football Academy, USA.com, right? Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, that, uh, like I said, that, that website is... Uh, is one thing and uh, if people want more direct contact with us then just feel free to send us an email info at worldfootballacademy.com uh, feel free to ask whatever you uh, you need or want to know and uh, my staff is uh, more than happy to uh, to answer within 24 hours so uh, we are more than happy to help i, I can i can vouch for that at least because Tim and I, we exchange many messages. <laughs> so. Yeah, but you have to keep the bar high. I mean, yeah. you practice what you preach. Uh, if, if your mission is uh, to raise the bar in football, then the first thing you have to do is keep your own bar high. And, uh, and that is also what people can expect uh, in the courses that we're going to run in July. Uh, because uh, on Friday, I think uh, July 7, we start in San Diego. And uh, in the weekend, on the Saturday and the Sunday, we go to Seattle. And then uh, in the next weekend, uh, we go to uh, North Carolina. And then we, we shift to the East Coast, North Carolina, New Jersey, and uh, Virginia with uh, DC United. So, um, yeah, we're going to run five, uh, five courses in the U.S. in July. And everybody uh, who uh, is curious about... Um, about raising the bar and, and this football specific approach is, is more than happy to, uh, to join us during those events. All right, Raymond, I appreciate your time. And I think, uh, I think the listeners are going to, they're, they're in for a treat listening to this one. There is a lot of uh, quality information. Okay. John, you're welcome. All right. I will, uh, I think I will actually be seeing you in July actually, if, uh, if I can work things out with Tim. So, yeah, okay, that's uh, the San Diego one, I assume. That is, that is. Okay, perfect. Well, good to see you then. All right, we'll see you then, Raymond. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye, John. Bye. All right, thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 Podcast. 
If you would like to find more episodes of the 343 podcast, or if you'd just like to poke around and check out some of the older articles or videos, or maybe our free or premium online coaching course, you can find all of that at 343coaching.com. That's the number three, number four, number three, coaching.com. We also offer a couple live in-person experiences, one of those being our coaching summit, and the other one, which is our players club. Both of those take place in Southern California. And if you'd like to join us for either of those programs, you can find out all of the details on 343coaching.com. All right. With that, I hope you enjoyed this, and we will catch you guys next time here on the 343 Podcast.